Live from Hanforth Parish Council, where the elderly like to punch on while thinking they're soldiers for democracy, it's a warm and hearty welcome back to the 42 to Doomsday podcast. We may have been cancelled more times than a Gareth Roberts Doctor Who tweet along, but we will not be silenced. I'm Rob. I'm Mark. And as the COVID-19 vaccines rollout gets underway in sunny Australia, let us all inoculate you from Doctor Who podcasts that insist on reviewing Big Finish and New Who episodes that we all secretly know they will never, ever watch again. And as Scott from Colorado says... I subscribe to close to 20 Doctor Who podcasts. This is one of the best. Thanks, guys. Sterling recommendation from Scott there. So roll up your sleeves and get ready for two large pricks to inject you with a double dose of the Princess AstraZeneca vaccine. Welcome back, everybody. It's 42 to Doomsday 2021 style. Rob, how are you, sir? I'm alive. How are you, Mark? About the same, really. No real change from last year, really. Still working from home. Uh, No, I have changed the orientation of my desk in the spare room. No longer do I stare at the wall. Now I just stare at the neighbours through the window. For some reason, they've just completely left. They've gone. Obviously, the intervention order has worked uh, successfully then, Rob. Clearly, the binoculars scared them off, so who knows? Exactly. And the desk is of the reinforced variety, is it, Rob? It's uh, quite old and made of some sort of plywood that has seen better days. So we'll see how it goes, but uh, it'll do the job. Some people would say the same thing about our podcast, Rob. <laughs> well, those people would definitely be right. Yes. So what have you been up to? Have you watching any television? Watching any Doctor Who? Well, yes, Mark. I actually sat down because uh, I had to buy a new Apple TV thingamajig uh, for v- reasons. Hmm. And uh, whilst I was setting it up, I added uh, iView, ABC iView, and I sat down and... Uh, found 50 odd minutes or maybe 65 i can't remember the running time and watched revolution of the daleks my first uh christmas uh episode for a couple of years because i still haven't watched uh, jody whittaker's first uh, holiday special uh, whose name escapes me for some reason something to do with the daleks that makes two of us so uh look everybody else does hot takes let's do a cold shower two minute review rob so hit it i was pleasantly surprised whilst i was watching it mark i mean it's not riveting television but in terms of uh, entertaining you yeah it works pretty well i think they took too long to get the doctor involved in stuff but uh all up it was all right it was uh it was halfway decent i think I, again the, f- the the hour long roughly or 55 minute or 65 minute form it doesn't does the show no justice you know the, the 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 character of the prime minister for instance was here and gone and i know um you sort of people will say well you know in today's storytelling you sort of get a, a broad outline or a sketch of, of a character and you sort of under, understand their motivations and you did with regards to the the prime minister uh, character but I, I just sort of miss there's a there, there, there's a a depth to classic doctor who storytelling not necessarily characterization i suppose but you get a feel for the characters over a longer period or over a longer running time that you don't tend to get here uh aside from that uh, i thought chris noth was quite good uh, I thought having Captain Jackback was quite good. Uh, the farewell for uh, Ryan and uh, and uh, Graham was uh, slightly touching, um, even though he kept on falling off the bike. So I'm not quite sure what lessons he's learned from that or what improvement has come along. But I suppose that the, I suppose if you just keep on trying, everything will turn out in the end. Uh, so it was a reasonably decent slab of television. It's not great television, um, but it is okay television. Have I made you uh, feel like you want to watch it, Mark? Oh, have you finished? Oh, okay. 
No, I haven't watched it, Rob. Although I did see it flash on iView and my missus said I was Captain Jack in that episode. And I said, yes. And she goes, gee, they must be desperate to bring him back. <laughs> so there you go. I read a rumour. I heard a rumour earlier in the week, Mark, and um, who, who knows if it was true or not. But uh, John Barrowman was asked to come back in a companion role. And for a variety of reasons, such as scheduling, I think he wasn't able to do so, which might explain perhaps the sort of strange voiceover ending at the uh, at the end of the episode and the introduction of uh, the new character played by John Bishop. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not, but uh, if they did bring him back, would that be a vote of confidence in the in the team overall? I don't know. But it's like they were going to bring back um, Sarah Jane for Matt Smith was at season seven. They were going to bring uh, Elizabeth Sladen back, wasn't it, until she uh, unfortunately passed away. So wow. And then they were going to bring back uh, Louise Jameson or Elizabeth Sladen to do the transition between Tom Baker and Peter Davison. So maybe when they think the show's a bit touch and go, they'll try and bring back an old face to um, bring some reassurance. I'm not too sure, Rob. And the nature of these sort of rumours, I mean, anything can be thrown up without anyone actually uh, having to provide proof. I just found it interesting that, that, you know, that was being claimed. Uh, Whether it's true or not, who knows? We'll probably find out in 30 years' time when we're all dead. Fair enough. Glad you semi-enjoyed it then. Yeah, it was all right. I mean, I've been watching other stuff uh, to keep my, you know, keep me amused in between writing this goddamn novel. (laughs) Oh yeah, how's that going? I haven't heard you whinge about it for days. My message to you today (laughs) (laughs) summed up my mood with regards to it. Uh, I don't think the editor is actually listening to this, so let's just say that I'm 62,000 words in, and I don't quite know what the ending's going to be, so we'll just see how that turns out. With the deadline of the 1st of April, and that's no April Fool's either. has to be in by then, so we'll see how we go. Hashtag no pressure, Rob. You know, it's just pure ego, Mark. I'm not doing it for the money, it's just pure ego, and I just bring it on myself. You love it. You sound yes. a little bit tense and stressed there. Do you want me to give you some jokes? I've had a few months to think about some jokes while we've been uh, sort of vaguely off the air. You know what? COVID, Mark, has a lot to answer for. <laughs> with those jokes. After these jokes, it still has a lot to answer for. Do you want me to roll them out to you, Rob, and see how you go? Roll them out. Okay, what's uh, Colin Baker's least favourite track and field event? I don't know. What is his least favourite track and field event? The pole vault. <laughs> what's Colin Baker's least favourite comedy I don't know Mark what is his least favourite comedy Police Academy I'm detecting a theme but let's carry on what's Colin Baker's least favourite video game I know the answer but I'll let you give it to us Mark Pole Position yes that's a classic Atari 2600 game isn't it it was a cabinet in the olden days ah. and they did a port on all the other micros but it's a very good port on the old Commodore 64 I, I shudder to think what it looks like on the old uh, Atari 2600 but uh, yeah it was a great game prepare to qualify I think you just said at the beginning in very uh, bizarre sort of Stephen Hawking speech but uh, yeah it's a good game and do you have one more uh, joke for us Mark or is that it I think after your disdain then I think it's enough Rob I'll, uh, I'll quit while uh, I'm ahead really well with the well dry Mark on those fantastic jokes uh, let's move on to our main segment you know Rob since 2014 we've been dragging our way through the archives primarily going through old DWBs and the occasional sonic screwdriver the uh, Victorian Doctor Who Club of Victoria publication pulling out the best articles and also reading out the letters pages that written by people from yesteryear and just sort of getting a view of what the sense of fandom was back in the day and Aaron Challenger a friend of the podcast he acquired recently we call it the mother load of uh, very early Australian fanzines from the late 70s to the early 80s from a Queensland Doctor Who fan club 
Club, who issued uh, Scope and the Miniscope magazines. But he also gave us a copy of the Victorian Time Machine, which was the precursor to Sonic Screwdriver that we, uh, we both worked on in the late 80s and 90s. I've sort of been going through these over the last couple of weeks and picking out some of the more interesting articles. Lots of fan fiction in there, some very interesting uh, theories and things like that, but I thought we'll just concentrate on the editorials and some of the letters as well and just get a sense of what the reaction was to uh, Season 17 when it started in Australia. When we read the articles out, see if uh, opinions back then marry up to what people think now. What do you think about that? You're very good. We're going to start with Skype issue number 9, as you can hear. I'm reading this from good old fanzine paper. Here and it's actually in very good nick for its age. This is the editorial and it says Lala Ward, formerly Princess Astra in Armageddon Factor, stepped into the role of Romana recently vacated by Mary Tam. Her appearance was explained by Romana choosing to regenerate into an exact copy of Astra's body. The regeneration scene was pathetic. Five regeneration within the space of a few minutes. If Time Lords are only allowed 12 regenerations and Romana can't have a healthy respect for continued existence, well, what reason is there to justify a regeneration? After this agonising scene, we are, air quotes, treated to the new Romana's character. She is going to be less haughty and more humorous and whimsical than her previous self. Unfortunately, Lala was Romana was riddled with basic inconsistency of character. One moment she was being forceful and self-confident in keeping with her Time Lord background, the next she is crying over K-9's fight with the Wolfweeds. How the two can be reconciled, I'll never know. Despite this, Romana 2 was almost consistent in Horns of Nymon, Lala Ward's performance being what it should be. Much to the detriment of the season as a whole, the two humorous characterizations of the lead characters clash, leading to scenes of hammy performances. The Doctor and Romana were not the two Time Lords of the Key to Time series. They are more like a comedy team in a vaudeville show. In general, the 17th season was a mediocre one, and Lala Ward's contribution to the concepts and history of Doctor Who was negligible, which is a pity. She did, however, perpetuate the character of Romana and display an interesting, to say the least, facet of her personality. The news from England is that Lala Ward will depart after three stories of the 18th season. Romana is definitely leaving and she will not regenerate. What will the method of departure do for the legend of Romana, I wonder? He doesn't hold his punches. Like a lot of Doctor Who fans, not willing to embrace change that's at variance with their expected notions of the show. Um, I mean, you know, and that, and that we, we, you know, you see that in the mid-70s with the rise of fandom, uh, most famously with the, the reaction to the deadly assassin. Uh, and what that did to uh, you know so-called time lord uh, history or, or or known you know lore. As I said before, you know fans are pretty con- surprisingly fans are pretty conservative in their views, and they know what they like and they know what they don't like. And any sort of change that comes along, uh, such as you know Lola Ward uh, taking over the role from Mary Tam, um, can be expected to be treated uh, with less than. Uh, uh, you know, open arms. But I think it also, uh, the, the the reaction to season 17 as well, again, like I said before, fans are a conservative lot and uh, they don't like their show being sent up to an extent or to the extent that we probably saw in certain aspects of season uh, 17. So uh, there's probably a double-edged, uh, you know, a two-pronged thing going on here. Um, what do you think, Mark? It's interesting, you know, he mentions the uh, the regeneration scene and five regenerations within the space of a few minutes. It's funny, it never really sort of um, clicked to me that much that she was going through bodies like she was throwing on clothes. I mean, now it can mm. be explained, oh, you know, it's all fluid. Like the hand, you know, it has yeah. that residual energy, blah, blah, blah. That's the technical term, by the way, blah, blah, blah. Yes. I wonder what this poor person would have thought about the uh, timeless children. 
Have you thought about that? He's probably having a coronary like uh, you and I are still having. But hammy performances? I don't. I mean, look. I think you know, horns on my mind. Tom is definitely uh, dialed up to eleven, where Romano is acting more uh, fourth doctorish than what Tom Baker is. But I think mm. when it works, it works well. Like City of Death, it, it's certainly a pleasure to watch these two performances go head to head, as it were, as, as equals. Mm. I get a lot of enjoyment out of season seventeen. But back, I remember when I joined Fan, it was completely reviled. People were calling the director of the Horns Nymon scum. Bit bullshit, those Doctor Who Club meetings, Mark. No, it was the Victorian ones. Hate to think it would have been like in other states, but um, interesting there. Have you got some letters there, Rob, from the same issue? What was the uh, thoughts of the readers back in the day? We have correspondent Nikki White from our beautiful uh, capital uh, of our wonderful nation uh, in Canberra. So, Nikki... Jeez, oh, i pushed that hard, haven't I, mate? <laughs> uh, Nikki writes... <laughs> Uh, a number of things about season 17. Uh, she was, on the whole, rather disappointed with the 17th season, uh, feeling it was not up to the previous standard of uh, earlier seasons. Uh, she thinks that, or she writes, that it fell down in three departments the general weakness of the stories, the poorness of some of the acting, and some of the special effects, and a certain lack of seriousness overall. Uh, she writes the canine is outstayed its welcome. I don't like its new voice nor its uh, new crotchety persona, uh, sounding more like Aurac out of Blake Seven. <laughs> In contrast to the editor, uh, Nikki believes that uh, Lala is uh, Lala Ward is a definite improvement over Mary Tam, bringing life, humour, wit, and intelligence to the role as a, as well as a natural charm. That's the sort of natural charm that attack, uh, attracted Tom Baker, isn't it, Mark? Absolutely. Uh, Nikki goes on to write that uh, no one story in this season was outstanding. Um, the way she found uh, in previous uh, seasons. She goes on to say the Destiny of the Daleks would have made more of an impact if it had a stronger story and they hadn't landed in yet another quarry. The story was too full of nationisms. He's often blatant contempt for his audience. There was a lack of consistency with what we had been told in earlier Dalek stories. Not to mention Davros's death. How was he revived anyhow? We had Nation's old shtick of human beings used in minds by the supposedly technologically advanced Dalek race together with the Resistance movement. Uh, the Mavellans looked good, and I liked watching Davros giving the Daleks a hard time while his mask moved around on his head. No, that, that was me editorializing. <laughs> uh, now, she goes on to say that uh, City of Death had a great idea and great special effects, uh, especially the primeval set, but suffered from the dreadful overacting of Kerensky and the detective Duggan, both of whom were not characters but caricatures. Catherine Schell was wooden and looked more like a relic from a 1920s spy film with her long cigarette holder. Uh, Count Scaliani was good. The snappy, witty dialogue between the Doctor and Romana was amusing but detracted from the seriousness of the story, turning it into a comedy. One was left asking, yes, but it's Doctor Who. It seemed more like the Avengers of the Emma Peel era. It was just so flippant. Hard words here. Uh, creature from the Pit was the turkey of the season, in my view. The acting was awful and the creature merely a rather obscene... <laughs> they picked that up back then. <laughs> An obscene lime green oversized beanbag. Uh, one can't take a marauding beanbag seriously, writes Nikki. The bandits were straight out of Monty Python via Oliver. She's going to make me sing now, Mark. I kept expecting the leader to burst into, you've got to pick a pocket or two, boys. <laughs> they quite destroyed the effect of the good work of Geoffrey uh, Balladin as uh, Organon and Adrusta and Carella, who were interesting. I can see why Balladin was is a favourite for the Doctor. He did remind me of William Hartnell. The Nightmare of Eden was a decided improvement. There was a genuine interest in the problem of the two interlocking ships and how they were going to solve it. Also, the Doctor had something to be uh, really concerned about, and this injected a note of seriousness in his manner. The jokiness seemed less evident. Uh, the mandrels were a bit of a laugh, though, and once more the mad scientist had a foreign accent. 
but uh, she preferred it to uh, Creature from the Pit. This will uh, shake people to their very core. Horns of Nyman are considered to be the best of a bad lot. The acting was consistently better, the costumes and sets good, and the plot, a variation on the Theseus legend, interesting. So uh, some certainly some interesting uh, thoughts there uh, about the episodes or the stories. Uh, she goes on to write that, as far as I'm concerned, Lella Ward had the potential to be good as Mary Tam, but she was let down sadly by the writers. Romana 2 is hopelessly inconsistent, echoing the uh, the editor. How can the scene in Creature from the Pit Part 1 be reconciled with the scene in the same story where a canine was attacked by the wolf weeds? Answer, it can't. Very good. Uh, Romana had some good moments in the season, every one of them when she was away from Tom Baker, and the aura of stupid jollity he insisted on spreading wherever he went. Nikki echoes what a lot of fandom has said since that... Uh, Lola Ward's best story was uh, Horns of Nymon, uh, and her final scene with Soldi was very good indeed. So there you go, Mark. That's um, thoughts from, what, geez, about 40 years ago. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, these particular thoughts about, you know, the season sort of still hold today amongst, the you know, a lot of fandom, I suppose, who, who you know, who have watched it in the intervening 40 years. What do you think? Looking at what uh, Nikki is saying, especially around, you know, Horns and Nylons being considered the best of a bad bunch, that's a pretty brave uh, move because that was seen to be the, the complete that of the season. And again, the season ended um, early because of the Sharda. Uh, not being completed. But poor old Duggan gets a bit of a kicking because I thought he was actually, he's fantastic in uh, City of Death. In this letter, at the end of it, it goes, I thought this was written by you aged four when I read this, right? But it's not. It says, Ed, a most interesting letter. Personally, I disagree entirely, but I'm glad someone took the effort to write and expound their views. That's one way to encourage people to write in, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly right. But the late 70s and the early 80s, definitely, see that that season had very polarizing views. And especially when a lot of people were saying that the previous season was um, was fantastic. Enjoyed the Key to Time series. On the whole, it does hang together, apart from really Armageddon Factor. Some interesting thoughts uh, back from the day. So let's let I'm going to read this from John Stein in uh, Queensland. John, I hope you're well and alive. <laughs> the last series of Doctor Who, The Key to Time, was excellent. But the current one was, half of one exception, City of Death, very poor. The regeneration of Romana was disgraceful. And as for Destiny of the Daleks and Terry Nation's other insult to Dalek history, Genesis of the Daleks should be erased from the memory banks of the mind, never to be recalled. But unfortunately, Davros is in cold storage somewhere, ready to be thawed out some other time in the future by Terry Nation. He was thawed out, but not by Terry Nation. He was thawed out by um, Eric, wasn't he? In Horns of Nymon, we went from bad to worse. The Doctor giving canine mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Why did he bother? Having said all that, the story City of Death was brilliant in complete contrast to other stories of the season. It had a good plot, hence there was no need for the excessive comedy routines used in the others. Having watched Doctor Who since its inception, I hope this new series was not the beginning of the end of the show. Let's hope that the next series puts the show back on the right track. We want a science fiction show with occasional comedy, not a comedy show in the framework of a science fiction series, as it was in the majority of the new series. Another editorial from The Hammer here. I'm still convinced it's you. (laughs) I concur. I feel that the end of part one of Horns and Nymon is perhaps the best illustration of what is wrong with this series. It took days to clear the vomit from in front of the television set. (laughs) <laughs> Cleaning vomit would have been easier then because glass wasn't wasn't LCD panels and things like that. Very strong views there, Rob. The seventies was a time of strong views, Mark. 
Strong views, strong flares, strong hair. Episode 1 of Haunts and Armon, where you do have the crash zoom in, and then you have all those sound effects going off when the TARDIS breaks down. And What were they thinking? I know there was the edict come down, you know, from the from the BBC, the, the top floor, to humour things up a little. It does sort of undermine what they're trying to do, I think, which is present a reasonably serious, I mean, a reasonably serious story. Hmm. That's probably going too far, even taking into account that the show is allowed to be humorous at times. If you look at Invasion of Time, that's very humorous as well mm. the horns of nine really sort of lay it on i can't remember actually was it shown around christmas time in 1979 maybe you thought it was like a christmas panto they really sort of released handbrake a bit but uh, it just goes to show you when you've got a director who is who can't control the leading man and a producer who's also having problems controlling the leading man and probably wanting to get out the door anyway things go slightly awry but uh have you watched horns of nine recently i think i watched it a few years ago I mean, it, it's certainly an interesting thing to watch, you know, after, uh, you know, over 40 years. Um, is it as bad as its reputation? Probably not, though, obviously. I think I think that's the problem with season 17, that there are a number of, you know, good stories. I mean, Destiny is, uh, is a halfway decent story let down in part by production, you know, problems or, or the budget, I suppose, to an extent. I think the only one that really works all the way through is City of Death, obviously. Mm. Uh, I, I watched um, The Nightmare of Eden with my, my daughters a few years ago and they enjoyed it more than Mask of Mandragora, which was, uh, I don't know, it was just horrifying to listen to. But, I mean, you know, it had colour and movement and all that sort of thing. Uh, it wasn't really po-faced like uh, Mandragora uh, is and can be. Look, season 17, I think it really is belted. At, well, it was certainly belted back then. It was belted during the 80s too, wasn't it, Mark? You, you were more involved in fandom than I was. But I, I think that there is, you know, for a show that's rising 17 years of continuous production... Um, there, there's, there's, there's still some interesting stuff, and they're, and they're trying, you know, different things. So, I mean, I don't think it's as appalling as you know what people characterised it back then. I mean, the ratings are certainly fantastic in the UK, mainly because the other station was off. Yeah. So, the only thing you could watch was the true state of the series, the ratings that they got the following year. You know, the five and the five and a half millions, which is even you know which is a a huge come down i mean the 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 time season was getting what nine ten or elevens i suppose eight or nine or ten and then to lose that in the space of 18 months to two years really yeah i mean there's a number of factors with that i mean you had obviously itv found their doctor who killer which is buck rogers yeah which i watched but i mean maybe people were tuning in because there's nothing else to watch and seeing tom baker dialing it to 11 and not liking what they're seeing and going oh okay well i'm not going to watch that again and maybe if it was sort of Hinchcliffe uh, style series there were there were being um, that was being sort of shown maybe that would have been more their boat and uh, would have come back the following year I think you could say that the Hitchcliffe era is certainly more engaging mm. I mean if you've got adults watching which they did you, you, you don't want to see your leading man giving mouth to mouth resuscitation to a tin dog you don't want to see funny um, sound effects overlaid on a particular scene um, you know, you don't want to see monsters shambling around with, you know, obscenely wide flares. I think, you know, if, if you've got, you know, strong drama and an engaging plot, and I think a, a leading man who is clearly committed to the role, uh, then you, you will have, you know, the, the, the parents or, uh, you know, the adult watchers coming back again, and they surely are the bulk of the viewing audience. It, it, I constantly, I mean, I don't know how you would have engineered or shuffled Tom Baker out after Hinchcliffe, you know, along with Hinchcliffe, but there was a time, a moment in Baker's tenure in the role where he should have gone. And even though season 18 is quite good and there are some, you know, really interesting themes and stories, uh, even though there's a sort of a, a shaky start, 
he still stayed, you know, probably two years too long, if not three. If you look at the history of the program, when would have been the ideal time for him to go? After Horror Fang Rock? <laughs> <laughs> go out on a high. Jeez, it's hard, isn't it, Mark? I, I think four or, f- four or five years in the role is enough. Maybe four. Mm. So you could have rejigged uh, season um, 15. I got that right season 15 so that he would you know he would go at the end of that the invasion of time with possibly the invasion of time which mm. which sort of seems you know it, it, it sort of apt in a way uh, you know f- you know sacrificing himself to save his home planet and regenerating there but he just lingered a little too long a couple of years too long mm. I think if he had left at the end of season 17 Shada would have got made because you can't have the most popular Doctor not finishing up on the high. They would have had to rejig things around. I reckon they would have gone back into production and finished off if he, uh, if he was leaving at the end of that story. But That makes sense. Again, we love season 18 and we love what he, we did with it as well. So it's a bit of a hard one, isn't it? Mm, definitely. Mark, we move on to the the editorial for Volume 10 of uh, Scope, which begins, This, the 17th season, got off to a bad start with the loser of the Scope poll. Is that like News Poll, Mark? It might be. Possibly more accurate. It would be very much more accurate than News Poll, yes. Which was Destiny of the Daleks. The story was very shallow and predictable, and the resurrection of Davros not very well explained. The story was very shallow and predictable, and the resurrection of Davros not very well explained. Now, if he had been a Time Lord, it would have been different. It would validate the intervention in Genesis, and the secondary life support would have aided him until his body had recovered from the shock. Uh, his right hand had a great deal more mobility, as was shown when he awoke. Uh, the Mavellan costumes were good, and although the landing of the ship was not too bad, it could have been just a little bit more convincing. There's a bit of nitpicking here. The title of Destiny was inappropriate. It did nothing at all to establish a destiny of any sort. It was just another story. Uh, there is, of course, a bit more to this story, but it would be a mere echo of the previous editorials. In City of Death, uh, we have the Doctor and Mana back on Earth in our time at last. Their arrival was the Jaggeroth, a spaghetti-headed humanoid with an eye for Terran masterpieces, or rather several of the same one. A superb Julian Glover as Scaroth headed an enthusiastic cast with uh, Catherine Schell as his thrill-seeking wife and Tom Chadburn as uh, Duggan. In this story, the Doctor appears to have deactivated the randomizer, thus seemingly giving him control of the TARDIS. The Cow was a superb arch-villain and exceeded in actually being menacing, whereas who could be menaced by Tristan Nightmare of Eden? <laughs> Although he's not revealed as the corporal until close to the finish. The Mandrels looked as though they had wandered off uh, the Muppet set. <laughs> that's not the first well, probably the first time that they've been referred to as Muppets uh, when we see the first mandrel it would not really have uh, surprised me if it had broken out into a rendition of Mammy the way he was swinging his arms uh, through the hole in the wall <laughs> uh, regarding Creature from the Pit I wish they could have used another form of the Tithinian Arato as the oversized beanbag wasn't satisfactory at all as with the majority of this season's stories it could have been a good story but for the bad special effects uh, in particular the scene where Arato tries to make contact with the Doctor and Organon it was so painfully done. Adrasta was splendid and her makeup excellent. She was a great nasty and Corella, nice as her offsider. <laughs> the doctor's attempt to communicate can only be described as ludicrous. <laughs> well, that's saying something, isn't it, really? Yes. Uh, Horns of Nymon had some good scenes with Romana. She performed her best when the doctor was not on the set with her. If the actor who played the last survivor of the Krinoth, the civilization, had played Soldate, it might have been a better reception. Uh, Soldate was trying to be very dramatic but failed miserably. Now, there's a... Uh, there's an understatement. I mentioned Romana's good scenes. One particular scene that comes to mind was her telling Soldate off and the crew member of the Skonos transport ship. 
Canine's voice was grating, he says Mark. Totally inappropriate. How did they imagine they could get away with it? The painful fact is they did get away with it. Rumour has it that John Leeson has returned to do his voice. We can only hope the next season is better. They don't pull their punches, do they? Look, it, it's the famous Australian directness and uh, incivility. Mm. Well, it was all, you know, it's what happened in Gallipoli where we just, you know, punched on with the English. This is basically <laughs> the same thing. Forget the Turk, let's punch on with the Poms. Interesting, isn't it? The Mandrels, the Muppet Show. Actually, I've started watching some of the Muppet Show because I put them on Disney. You know, the late 70, early 80s ones. Yes. Any good? Yeah, actually, I just watched the Mark Hamill one. That was quite funny, actually. Yeah. Okay, interesting. It's a bit like a comfort blanket. I'm going home and watching the Muppet Show and Kay and watching it and uh, yeah, enjoying it immensely. Family are going, what the hell are you trying to do? Go back to your youth? And going, yes, just a little bit. <laughs> I was young and uh, things were different. but Not better, but just different. Just different, isn't it, really? But uh, yeah, season 17 was definitely still getting the kicking from these guys. And speaking of keep on kicking, before we go to letters pages, I'm just going to read you a quick review of uh, Terence Dix novelization of Dalek Invasion of Earth. It says Terence Dix's version of Terry Nation's screenplay of the Dalek Invasion of Earth is one of his better efforts and quite a contrast to the asinine garbage he churns out with startling regularity today. How dare he? We'll get back to that later. The last William Hartnell story to date, although Keys and Marinus has been released in England. Uh, this is quite good and comes close behind the Daleks and the Tenth Planet as regards for quality of presentation and value for money. The cover does justice to the movie starring Peter Cushing, but the text thankfully is faithful to the Hartnell screenplay and the situation it resolved without the melodramatics of the magnetic properties of the Earth. This is clearly a carefully written book and Dix does his best to create the atmosphere nation intended. The Daleks are written quite well, the scene with Jenny and Barbara in the museum being especially memorable. The Slither, however, does not fare as well and there is never a clear mental image invoked. Well, mainly cut that out in Australia, didn't they? They cut the slither out. Too scary for our sensibilities, Mark. Align it to the Australian uh, transmission. I'm looking at the black and white photocopy of the... Uh, assuming there were photocopies back in 1970-something. Of the cover of uh, the uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth. Is there a better cover in the Target novelizations, Mark? Look at that. There are a few, but that is certainly a very evocative cover. We've got airships. We've got Big Ben. It's always Big Ben that cops are hiding, isn't it, in Doctor Who? Yes. Even I've blown up Big Ben in my... um in my candy jar Lethbridge Stewart story, I, Alistair, available from all good online retailers. What did you do to it? There was a terrorist bombing that racked London, mate, and Big Ben copped it in the neck. Was there much damage to it, or was it just completely flattened? It caught fire, basically, so it went up like a Roman candle. Is that why the scaffolding around at the moment, is it? <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe. But no, it's, a, it's an evocative cover. It's fantastic. Anyway, we digress yet again. Time travellers come across fairly well, although it is doubtful that those unfamiliar with the characters of the early incumbents of the TARDIS would have appreciated the novel as much as those with knowledge of the program's early stars allowed them to interpret things. Anyway, so without previously established reference points, a lot of the book's subtleties could well have been lost. What he does then is also then reviews the Dalek Master Plan, which is written by Rosemary Howe. She's not related to the famous Anthony Howe. Yes, I think that was his mum. Oh, okay. That was their fanzine, Zorinza. That's the one. Did they do a special? They did. There was a there was a, Rosemary Howe novelised uh, the Dalek Master Plan in an issue, in quite small type, but uh, you you you. Uh, it is readable of the Daleks' master plan. Uh, and Zorinza is the same magazine, actually, that uh, Damien Shanahan expounded at length uh, about his uh, finds for the, uh, the, the the sensor clips, didn't he, Mark? Yes, I believe he did. And uh, if Damien's listening, uh, would you like to come on the show, mate? We have so many questions to ask you. <laughs> 
please get in touch with us at the usual contact references. 42 to doomsday at gmail.com, Damien. And Rob's personal mobile number is... <laughs> <laughs> go on, Mark, go on. Dalek Master Plan has one of the most convoluted plots ever conceived for Doctor Who, although Invasion would run a close second. Despite this, Mrs. Howe makes everything crystal clear and it's as easy to follow the narrative without the aid of visual memories, a situation that often occurs with Target. The Daleks and Mavichan come across extremely well as do their counterparts and Confederates. The whole feeling of the book is right, the tension mounting from the interlude on Campbell that was Mission to the Unknown to the startling Dayumont. With the time destruct, the comedy scenes blended well, although the feast of Stephen was incongruous, but this was not Mrs. Howe's fault. It is interesting to see that Target have plans for novelising Keys and Mariners, but it will be better to know they were paying Mrs. Howe to do it. That's very interesting about the master plan, though, because it was never shown over here, so she must have had access to the scripts or something. I would say so. There would be no other way to do it, so I'm sure Anthony, or Anthony Howe, had contacts in the UK who would have been more than happy to, you know, Xerox photocopy letra set I don't know what they did sent it by carrier pigeon uh, to them actually they may have even had the audio to work from that's possible I doubt it if it was it'd be like this <laughs> you couldn't hear anything out of those audios back then they were copied so then definitely the script poor old Uncle Terence Dix gets a bit of a hammering doesn't it asinine garbage he churns out with startling regularity in Terry's defence there weren't many people left wanting to do them so he had to churn them out really yes they were workmanlike you know especially the late 70s output but once he had a bit more um, other people started taking the load off him as it were I think he had the time then to sort of, um, you know, flesh them out of it. But his, his view has always been there'd be a, a traditional adaption of a television story. So what you read was pretty much what you got. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Terence Dix was just asked to come back because he was reliable. I mean, uh, to be able to churn out thirty or 40,000 words per month for, you know, eight or nine months of the year is, is, uh, is a talent in and of itself. Uh, so being reliable like that would, you know, have gotten him back, regardless of what you may have thought of the quality of, 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 of the output. I, I mean, I prefer where the writer expands, and not, not to the point where they sort of undermine the intent of the story. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, I, I, uh, I wandered into Minotaur a few weeks ago and picked up a copy of, uh, I think it was, um, was it uh, Revelation of the Daleks by uh, one Eric Sayward? And there was a reason why the hardcover was still sitting there, Mark, because I read a page and then I put it back, backed away, and then just sprinted out of the store. It's no good. It is no good. I started reading Resurrection. I couldn't finish it. I thought it was terrible. Such a shame. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm struggling to. I'm struggling to um, put it into words. I think they needed to get a different writer. But then, of course, I suppose Sayward had right of you know first or last refusal or whatever um, to doing it. So um, yeah, that putting that aside, I would have got someone else to do it or insisted that say would stick uh stick closer to the story and and well just 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 you know try harder perhaps you know write better <laughs> eric please try harder next time because his, his novelization of like twin dilemma is actually really really good yeah no i agree i agree i mean he's more than capable of writing a really good script or a really good novelization it's just that with with that, those two that from what i've seen admittedly i haven't read all of them they were um look it, i don't know specifically you know the circumstances under which they were written or what his sort of remit was but they don't really match the tone of the stories that they are you know that purport to represent 
unfortunately. Yeah, it's completely out of sync, isn't it, really? I, I suppose we were expecting a bit of a more of a traditional telling of those two stories, but you got some sort of... He's trying to mash up an old story with some new Who storytelling, potentially. I don't know, but it, I just started reading it. I got bored of it and haven't read it since. I mean, he hasn't written... As far as I'm aware, he hasn't written a book uh, in 30 years. So, I mean, in fairness to him... You know, writing a, a screenplay or a script is, is is a far different proposition than novelizing, you know, a, a television story and fleshing the characters out and getting, you know, getting those in, in interior looks at the characters. Um, so, you know, I, I possibly should walk back some of my criticism. It's a hard thing to do, I acknowledge. It's just that I think that Sayward has undermined his legacy somewhat with these particular stories, but that's a personal opinion. I'm glad that people out there. Uh, who do like it are liking it so I mean that's fine that's fine but I, I just no not for me unfortunately what we're going to do now is sort of deviate a little bit because uh, in this Scope magazine they had an interview with Peter Ling now Peter Ling of course was the writer of the uh, Mind Robber and there's a little bit of an interview with Peter Ling so I might just quickly read some of it out and uh, see if we can get any uh, background into the making of the Mind Robber so uh, strap yourself in Rob how about we do this? You could be the interviewer, and I could be Peter Ling. In this performance, Mark, I will play the role of the interviewer, and you will be... Peter Ling Ling Ling. Here we go. Did you have any knowledge of the Doctor Who series before you wrote The Mind Robber? I used to watch Doctor Who occasionally before I wrote for it. I have four children, now almost grown up. I must have sat in on their teen time viewing quite often. Also, then the script editor, Terence Dix, gave me a lot of background information and invaluable help when I came to my script. Mm. Were you given a basic story theme, or was it your invention from start to finish? The Mind Robber was my own idea. I suggested it to Terence Dix and Derek Sherwin, and they liked it, and they commissioned it. Did Terence Dix have any qualms about the script on the grounds that it may have been beyond the grasp of young children? Yeah, I don't remember them being any reservations. I rather suspect we did the show as much for ourselves as for an audience of children. I don't think we altered anything because it was impossible for television. I had a fairly realistic idea what could and couldn't be managed, but we did have to alter one sequence and turn Jamie into a cardboard cutout when the actor got the mumps and had to leave the cast. I saw the end product and liked it very much. And the repeat piece. One detail that may amuse you. When I wrote for Lemal Gulliver, I decided to play scrupulously fair and I didn't invent any of his dialogue. He never said anything that wasn't from Gulliver's travels somewhere. It nearly drove me mad, but it was a tiny triumph to achieve. A bit like me trying to do consistent accents for Peter Ling. I was just going to say, Mark, uh, you've, you've really you've, you've spanned continents uh, <laughs> and, and regions of the UK there. And welcome to uh, Phil Morris, uh, who's emerged from his man cave in Wigan, <laughs> counting film prints <laughs> to play the role of Peter Ling, however briefly. One, two, three, four, five. I'm bringing back Power Daleks alive. Yeah. Uh, there's a BAFTA in it for him. Well, there's nothing there, Mark, that we didn't already know, but good on the, uh, the fanzine for interviewing Peter Ling, because he's basically vanished from Doctor Who history, hasn't he? I'd, was he ever interviewed by DWM? Or had he died before? He might have been. And I think he was supposed to be doing a script proposal for the later years. I think Colin Baker's season. Because J&T was trying to get in cahoots with him to resurrect one of the soaps that Peter Ling, I think, created. Was it called Compact or something like that? And I think uh, J&T was trying to get his help to um, to resurrect that and call it Impact. So he said, look, if you help me, I'll, uh, I'll get you in front of the uh, Doctor Who script area. And even Eric Sayward rejected it. So... Um, 
and I think there was a there was some sort of overview of the story in some magazine I vaguely remember, but I don't think even Big Finish have touched it. So that's a, that's a good indication of its quality. That says something, doesn't it? Yeah. So uh, I don't think he's alive anymore and cannot sue me for my appalling accent that uh, I did at Peter Ling. So Mark, we now move on to the next section, uh, which is uh, it takes a look at uh, the target novelizations. There's a there's a letter or a column here about um, how good or maybe how not good they are. Just a quick question, Mark. When was this um, po- uh, when was this fanzine uh, released or produced? Was it in seventy nine eighty or? Yeah, it's about seventy nine eighty. There's actually no dating on it. It's a bit like unit dating. It's inconsistent. But <laughs> I mean, uh, if season seventeen, I think was shown out nineteen eighty over here. So yeah, it's probably you know very early eighties. So yeah, I'll begin then, Mark. Um, so it begins with uh, the target novelizations of Doctor Who have long been the centre of controversy. Produced primarily as, a, as monuments to the respective author's literary talents, or lack thereof, such tomes have been eloquent in their exposition of the underlying philosophy of the publisher. Although enjoying apparently perpetual reprints, Doctor Who novels have never been more than curiosity pieces, trapped between two mediums and the rising expectations of their idiosyncratic readers. Jesus, there's, there's a dictionary spurted out all over that page there, Mark. As an obvious effort to exploit a clearly demarcated market, Give it up, son. Target novels were granted with sufficient enthusiasm to encourage an ongoing series. However, while initial volumes were of an acceptable standard, commercial interests quickly subverted literary quality to the extent that current issues have become overvalued catastrophes. The publisher's perception of the market, rather than expanding with the popularity of the host program, have become more confined as their attitudes have moved into congruence with those of Tom Baker. Focusing exclusively on the pre-teen market, they have been apparently oblivious to the inherent contradiction of producing comparatively expensive publications for that section of the public least able to afford them. Coincidentally, older buyers have become progressively disillusioned with the blatantly juvenile product Target offers as a record of the program. Because of the nature of the electronic media, television programs can't be preserved. Don't we know it now, sunshine? Except in the memory, and after metamorphosis, in the more permanent written media. Those viewers who patronise Target publications have been motivated primarily by the desire to have access to favourite episodes. Thus, ideally, Doctor Who novels, while exhibiting all prerequisite qualities of the literary form, would also preserve the spirit of the program in characterisation, settings and especially dialogue. Unfortunately, however, the Target books have been notably unsuccessful. Those millions sold, clearly. (laughs) Anyway, both as novels and as records of the program. At their best, such novels have been typified by inadequate characterization, description, and dialogue. The authors, by assuming that readers will be familiar with the relevant detail, failed to include it, and thereby reduced any appeal the books could have had for the general public. The subsequent deterioration of both the literary and artistic qualities further facilitated this trend, with the result that Target has essentially isolated its market. The novels would be of little value to a reader unversed in Doctor Who. Why would you be reading it if you weren't a Doctor Who fan anyway? In addition to the novelizations, Target has attempted to diversify its operations with the publication of quote-unquote special issues devoted to more quote-unquote picturesque aspects of the program. Preschoolers were satisfied. (laughs) Jesus. Although Target's contribution to the Doctor Who mystique has been minimal, its role should not altogether be discounted. He's walking it back now, Mark. A provision of even grossly imperfect accounts of the Doctor's travels is preferable to none at all. Until other alternatives are forthcoming, therefore, Target must continue. Full stop. Look, pick pick a lane. Pick a lane. (laughs) Hate it? 
love it embrace it spurn it do whatever you want and also have some consistent spelling with the word program are you american or british uh what did you think of all that mark wow so obviously he hasn't gone off to buy the latest DWM with that beautiful target uh poster you can put on your wall with all the covers and the, the loving uh retrospectives that have been happening over the last couple of years about the target book you know what mark i can see this fellow hate buying the target novelizations <laughs> reading them while crying and then gleefully dancing around their burning forms in the backyard <laughs> like book burning all over again i know in the early 80s just mentioned that the, the terrorist dicks efforts were, were snared upon a bit these are all we had to rewatch the program as you said that line about still in the memory that's exactly right certainly the BBC archives only had three episodes back then so this is all we had <laughs> these helped me and a generation of children and encouraged us to read and if they were too adult then you'd completely shutting off one end of the market so you had to get that delicate balance but I mean look at the prices now for the bloody hardbacks you could you had a set of hardbacks you can definitely buy a yacht these days <laughs> or even build a yacht with them I mean, look, well, the column makes a few interesting points while it's not contradicting itself. Um, And it's interesting that the writer either isn't aware of or is deliberately, uh, you know, ignoring um, that the fact that we're on the cusp of the videotape revolution, um, you know, it's only a few years away from, you know, VHS copies of Doctor Who stories being released. Um, Look, again, he contradicts himself. Either you have... uh, in the absence of actually anything to watch again, you have an accurate retelling of the stories, which is what, you, as you said before, what Terence Dix was trying to do, or you don't. When you're 8 or 10 or 12, literary merits or lack thereof of a Terence Dix novelization or just a target novelization in general is neither here nor there. You are experiencing, you're getting a chance to experience the show, albeit in a different format. Um, maybe he was spoilt for choice in terms of you know, being an Australian Doctor Who fan where there were an incessant variety or amount of uh, of repeats. So, you know, you, you basically just had to turn the telly on and you were watching a story again and again and again. And if you were a UK fan, I mean, these were the only way to, you know, re-experience or experience the show again because there were, you know, virtually or very few repeats, you know, during during the year. Uh, mm. Look, it's an interesting column or interesting article. Um, I suppose it's, it's wrong on some points and it's right on others. But uh, it's an interesting viewpoint from 40 years ago, Mark, definitely. The bordering around this article is some of the old uh, Chris Achilleos covers, you know, the Three Doctors one. Yeah, mm. the giant robot one's got the Tom Baker in the, uh, in the O and it's got the robot reaching for the sky and the uh, little cutout of Sarah Jane there. And mm. the, um, they're fantastic, aren't they? I mean, they are. I mean, there's the, the Planet of the Spiders one, which I don't have. Uh, that's really evocative. There was a poll on Twitter. Someone does a a cover, Doctor Who book cover poll, and uh, the one for the 10th planet came up, and I was horrified to realise that that was released in 1976. Oh, my gosh. I had a strong memory of, of, of actually, you know, picking it up for the first time in the early 80s, but um, there must have been a reprint. But, yeah, you know, some of or a lot of the target novelizations aren't, you know, uh, anything more than sort of your bread and butter transcription of the script. At least the, uh, the covers, some of the covers are utterly fantastic. They really are. Absolutely right. And in fact, there's a book called Clack. Yes. It's got the, uh, a lot of the Chris Achelios, um covers. Isn't that published by Candy Jar, that book? My publisher, Candy Jar, recently just released uh, a, a collection of uh, artwork by Chris Achelios devoted to uh, the target novelization. So there is, you know, there's, there's his commentary, I believe. 
uh, on one side uh, and then there's a reproduction without the titles I think on the other plate on the other side of the, uh, the page I have seen lots and lots of positive commentary uh, out there so I mean if you've got the money you've got the deep pockets for it definitely search that one out at Candy Jar because it, it's it's a wonderful collection and it's a spotlight on you know a, a really talented artist artist I mean he just didn't do covers he was a, you know, a bona fide artist so mm. Doctor Who or Target at least and, and Doctor Who fans were definitely lucky to have someone of his caliber you know providing cover illustrations for some of their favorite books sell your hardback collection and they'll pay it probably for the shipping costs from <laughs> from the UK to Australia at the moment uh, yes. yeah so we're gonna have a quick look at what's called the scope special which is basically a retrospective of the 60s and 70s seasons of Doctor Who it's interesting the 60s only is only like two or three pages because I don't think people could remember that much but there is lots of information on the 70s uh, they go through every era and every series so we're not going to read everyone out but i'm going to read some of the more interesting bits out won't we rob yes especially around some of the, the perceptions of uh stories that we have different views on and to what they were back in the day so we might have a quick uh start off with uh season 12 it's called uh no doctor i'm the doctor the 12th season comprised of stories such as robot ark in space on tyrant experiment genesis the daleks and revenge of the Cybermen. it had the privilege of introducing tom Baker to the fans and is probably one of the most screen seasons in existence <laughs> this was written in late early 1980 guess what buddy we would have seen them a whole lot more by the time the end of the 80s came around I can tell you that yes I had very little idea who this Baker person was but I soon decided that he was doing a better job as a doctor than John Pertwee had for quite a while variety is a spice of life certainly it was time for a change and he seemed just the man to bring the change about robots started the new season I'm very tempted to leave it at that despite the very occasionally brilliant dialogue this story had very little going for it. The singular lack of plot, creatively, was rarely made up for either by acting, dead, or special effects, worse. With both good and terrible actors and actresses running around trying to decide whether or not to take the story seriously, no wonder the robot was confused. This story must class as one of the worst ever. Quite possibly it's the origin of most Tom Baker's ideas about the program, which may work on a superficial level, but became extremely strained after five or so years. Robot remains one of the very few stories I don't enjoy seeing again. Fortunately, during the recent fifth screening, a percentage of Queenslanders were saved by timely power cuts. Perhaps it's a trifle cynical, even for Robot, but it was for the fifth time. I think the last time I saw Robot on television was in 1989, where at the start of my last year of high school, they, they had it on repeat. I think it was in January or February of 89. So they were still pumping it out. Don't worry about that. Genesis of the Daleks remains one of the most controversial Doctor Who stories ever. However, if you can ignore or at least put aside for a bit the continuity blunders, this is a very good series with excellent acting from all involved, though a special mention must be made of Michael Wisher as Davros. Brilliant. He cannot be commended too highly for his portrayal. Revenge of the Cybermen was certainly objectionable. It made no sense by way of continuity. Who are the Vogans? What's all this about? Cyber Wars? Why should Cybermen be affected by gold? Just because it doesn't corrode? How could a time ring possibly miss a temporal coordinate and still make it to the Beacon? 
Why did the Cybermats suffer their extravagant redesign? Where would it all end? When I think of the 12th season, I think of Robot, then Revenge of the Cybermen, Sontaran Experiment, Genesis of Daleks, and finally Ark in Space. A pity that the idea of reintroducing the Daleks and Cybermen in their biggest and best series so that they would not have to re be redone was a good one. As for the first season of Todd Baker's amazingly popular Doctor, the 12th didn't amount to much really. The season could have been one of the best, but it wasn't. It's interesting that fans were obsessed uh, with continuity, well, some fans anyway were obsessed with notions of continuity back in the very early 80s, mm. uh, which, you know, it reached its height uh, later on in the decade, obviously, with DWB going absolutely berserk. Um, <laughs> I, th I think, you know, at some point, the, the writer here is more uh, concerned with the continuity and the changes that they see in the show than they are with, you know, the, 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 the actual positive aspects of, you know, Tom Baker's first series. I mean, Look, I can understand that his portrayal is, you know, markedly different from uh, from Pertwee's, and that the stories themselves are markedly different from, you know, the Pertwee era. But I, th I think he goes, or the writer goes, too far sometimes in his objections to series to season twelve. I I know sort of people sort of like Revenge of the Cybermen. I'm not a big fan of it. I was never a big fan of it, even when I was watched it for the first time. But there's, you know, there's at least three great stories here. Ark in Space, Genesis of the Daleks. Oh, no, there's only two great stories, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I think there are two classic stories in uh, in Season 12. One, you know, not so great one. Um, and, you know, the the, the, the other, the, the remainders um, are, are pretty good. So uh, it's interesting, isn't it, uh, how, you know, ideas of continuity were sort of blighting fans back then and on that point it's interesting also that you don't see new series fans raging you know against each other in, in continuity wars they just don't care do they mark no the show's been back for 15 16 years now um and there's been plenty of opportunity for showrunners to screw up you know the continuity of previous showrunners <coughs> tribunal and um there's uh, no one's other than classic series fans have, uh, have have engaged in anything approaching a civil war. I think because they're more recent, you know, they're more recent to the show. They haven't. Um, they're a lot more accommodating of any sort of changes to, you know, continuity and the character and the shape of the program. Where you know, you've got us old farts who are fairly rusted on and have a perception of how it should be. And you know, we've grown up with it and everything like that. And I think as you get older, our um, we become a bit like Fox News. Really, we become a bit more. <laughs> nuttier and more intolerant stop the steel mark a bit more set in our ways really and uh, get offended by all sorts of things these days i wouldn't have minded timeless children if it was actually decent television now rob if you thought that last article was a bit um cuckoo wait till you hear this stuff uh death to the daleks was an abysmal story that only had one thing going for it F-I-R, not for it. Uh, apart from the Doctor and Sarah, the character of Bilal. Uh, Bilal was a delightful creature painstakingly portrayed by actor Arnold Yarrow. The Daleks were sad specimens allowing themselves to be destroyed by simple things like sticks and stones and spears. On the other hand, the Citadel was almost impressive while its destruction was very interesting, but it's hardly enough to save the story which must remain as most forgettable of the season, except, of course, Bilal. Now, this is where it gets really crazy, Rob. In contrast, Monster of Peladon was a joy to watch. What mushrooms was this person eating back then, Mark? 
I don't know. Was I around back then? I'm not too sure. <laughs> Complex, thought-provoking, strongly acted, and flawlessly produced. Um, what can you say other than just stammering uncertainly to a stop and wondering at the mental uh, acuity of certain people? This person's probably only watched it once, and he probably only <laughs> caught one episode of it. Clearly changed their brain chemistry oh, forever. Look, it gets so. worse, but look, I can't read the whole thing. It's just making me sick. However, he does finish off by saying, Monster <laughs> Peldon was a marvellous story, a classic in the best Doctor Who tradition. Like the abomination before it, however, it served to emphasise what had become increasingly obvious over the last two seasons. Unit had outlived its usefulness. It was time for the Doctor to change. And so we come to Planet of the Spiders. Planet of the Spiders could be considered as the archetypal John Pertwee story. All the old unit team comes back in somewhere. Mike Yates brings Sarah to the monastery and it is Joe who sends the Doctor the Crystal and triggers the entire adventure. Many threads of the Pertwee era came together in Planet of the Spiders. It's an excellent idea to wind up with a blue crystal culminating in the running theme of the previous season. The use of Kempo was reminiscent of the Hermit mentioned in Time Monster, the same Time Lord One Wonders. We learnt a little of Joe's fate and we were Treated to one of the most dramatic scenes Pertwee ever played. The scene with the Great One. If only this scene, Planet of the Spiders, was worth it. Compared to the Tenth Planet War Games, Planet of the Spiders fails dismally. Basically, this is because it is not so much a Doctor Who story as a John Pertwee story. A sorry end to a great era. Some very diverse views there, Rob. Well, look, everyone has a different opinion. Uh, frequently, they're wrong, aberrant, and should be taken out the back and smacked. Um, but. I've not seen Monster of Peladon for a long, long time. My understanding is it is no good. Would that be correct, Mark? That's the received wisdom now? It's six episodes too long. <laughs> Should have just been in a, a set of opening and closing titles and we're out. <laughs> I think you could have condensed it down in, into two episodes and it would have been perfectly fine. In the Pertwee Panthenon, it's certainly right down the bottom. The worst thing is about it is it's complete and in colour. I mean, why couldn't that be burnt and have something like, I don't know, something decent instead? Like Fury from the Deep or something. Ah, well. Sliding doors, Mark. Sliding doors. Now, speaking of sliding doors, Rob, I've saved this one for you because I just want to get your thoughts on this. Will I be crying by the end of it, Mark? Well, let me just read it anyway. Yeah. Let me read it. Okay. I have actually pre-read this and I'm I've, I've just holding on to sanity after having read this uh, earlier in the day. Uh, now, we jump ahead to the 15th Doctor Who season. So the beginning of the 15th Doctor Who season was, unfortunately, a disappointing one. <laughs> what the hell's going on here, Mark? Definitely no classic... Horror of Fang Rock suffered from a distinct lack of plot and dynamics? <laughs> Madness is this, Mark. This was no doubt due to the rushed production of the story resulting from the demise of the proposed season beginning, the vampire mutations. Jeez, they were into the hard stuff when they were writing this, Mark. The other major factor contributing to the show's quality, question mark, was the identity of its author. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. He's barely cold in the grave and they're already just going after Terence. Terence Dix was in fine form for this story, displaying the expertise perfected in the numerous target novelizations and his last credited TV effort, Robot. I'm detecting a backhanded Jesus compliment there, Mark. Christ. Slap, slap, slap. Characterizations were, despite this, fairly, fairly, fairly well written and performed. Alan Rose Skinsale was straight out of a boy's own novel, while Palmerdale was a typically greedy and self-centered English lord. Look, I don't know about this, Mark. If these people are dead, I'm going to dig up their graves and, you know, do something unmentionable to it. This is wrong. This is just wrong. It's un-Australian for starters. But having said that, it's typical of your Queenslanders who are contrary and just deserve whatever comes to them or what is coming to them shortly. You have to remember though, Rob, the 15th season of Doctor Who back then wasn't well regarded and certainly Horror Fang Rock, the much-loved story that it is now. Mark, who are these fucking heretics and where are they? 
<laughs> well, they're probably still in Queensland or potentially some are still alive and watching Star Trek. I don't know. It's a form of madness, isn't it, really? I mean, is it the, the cane toads? Have been smoking cane toads up there? And if they're not been smoking, then they've definitely been giving a good old licking um, because there's... there's uh, it's horror of Fang Rock, Mark. It's the greatest story of its its particular era. It's just It's just wonderful. But again... But again, different strokes for different folks. and uh, But they're wrong. They're clearly wrong. We know that. I wonder what they'd be thinking now. Because, look, the memory does change over time. There yes. are stories that both didn't like as uh, younger individuals that uh, we sort of have more tolerance to now and quite enjoy. So maybe this person who wrote this review uh, might have more uh, lovingly things to say. But look, if it's the same person wrote Monster Paladin, mate, you've got no hope in the future. I have no <laughs> idea what you're doing. Repent, sinner. Repent. This is Miniscope 11, Mark, and in it they contain a convention report from Sydney. Uh, so a couple of the Queenslanders have ventured south of the border. The convention is dated the 15th of June 1980, and this is special because none other than John Pertwee uh, was in Australia at that time, and the convention was uh, put together to feature him. It begins with the usual talk about hucksters' stalls and selling fanzine and T-shirts and books and etc. etc. There's uh, Someone's uh, put up a video of the Dalek invasion of Earth uh, is it 2100? 2150, but they put 2100. It's a typo. We'll go with a typo, I think. Or it's a pirate copy with a dodgy <laughs> label. So they've got John Pertwee there, but they're showing a Peter Cushing film. Yes. Well, and I'm sure this film had been shown on Channel 9 many, 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 many times before. But anyway, of course, uh, they do the obligatory Doctor Who Mastermind panel at 2 p.m., according to this report, which was uh, the convention itself was organised by Tony Howe. That's the Anthony Howe, isn't it? The one and the same. The main uh, event, of course, was uh, the arrival of one John Pertwee. Uh, and, and I'll just read the uh, the report here. So at 3.30 p.m. to everyone's delight, John Pertwee arrived. It actually says mild pandemonium. <laughs> mild pandemonium? What is mild? <laughs> How can you have mild? It's like, it'd be like this, like golf claps. That's terrible. The great man wouldn't have been happy with that. There's nothing more, nothing worse than being an ex-doctor is there. (laughs) And people going, yeah, he's just turned up. We'll go with mild pandemonium uh, as a spontaneous applause threatened to take over the afternoon. Okay, so I think it's wild. But anyway, but the audience of nearly 200 adults and children settled as John raised a hand. It's like the Pope arriving, isn't it? His Holiness, the Pert. <laughs> Instead of the Papermobile, he had the Hemobile, although he probably couldn't get it over. <laughs> no. The preliminaries of drawing three raffles and the presentation of the Mastermind Prize were quickly over, and the interview talk began. Chaired by uh, Stephen Collins from Queensland, the secretary of the club, uh, David Wright and Anthony Howe, uh, and a rogue draconian, uh, just at random. Uh, this public interview was so entertaining. Pertwee gave readily of his memories and opinions, talking of not only the joys of playing the Doctor, but also some of the sorrows. He spoke very eloquently and sincerely about Roger Delgado, sharing with us his feelings on the death of a man who was both a great actor and his very dear friend. And he also related some very funny stories from shooting the show. Throughout it all, his respect for the program and his very real affection for the cast and crew shone through. This sounds like a write-up of uh, the modern Doctor Who, actually, doesn't it? It's not from the Cardiff Prafter, is this? No. (laughs) It could be. A complete and dedicated professional, John Pertwee showed that he was also a warm and charming man. He spoke to us all as equals, and no question, whether from his panel of interrogators or from the audience, was too trivial for him to consider. It was a joy to observe such a genial and interested performance. That's an interesting choice of words there, performance, isn't it, Mark? 
Uh, and it goes on to say at about 5pm John began signing autographs and in about an hour he had cleared the foyer. He then stood around for half an hour talking to those who remained, dredging up more stories from his five years on Doctor Who and enthusiastically describing his new series, Wurzel Gummidge. John Pertwee is a totally professional actor who takes his work very seriously and is totally prepared to talk about it for as long as anyone is prepared to listen and talk back. It was a stimulating and gratifying experience to meet him, certainly well worth a trip to Sydney. It is a great shame that we did not hear about the convention soon enough to be able to arrange for more people to go. I think that just says more about people from New South Wales, not looking people from <laughs> Queensland. John Pertwee's talk slash interview will be shared with you all through future meetings and issues of, well, they're calling it Scope, but it's clearly Miniscope. That's fantastic because, I mean, the great man did uh, venture back to our shores, I think, 10 years later to that uh, convention in Brisbane, uh, which unfortunately I uh, did not attend and regret to this day. Bad fan, Mark, bad fan. <sighs> That was in the days where travel was uh, by plane, the price of a small car. <laughs> People who did go from Victoria got the old Greyhound up on for 24 hours, you know, on, on the bus. Can you imagine a Greyhound bus packed with fans for 24 hours, Mark? <laughs> Odeur de fan? No, it'd be terrible, wouldn't it, really? I was just reading the, uh, the end of this article, and it says, Due to the success of the reported Sydney convention, plans are being discussed for a second convention that may possibly be held in Sydney in March of 1981. There is a possibility that Elizabeth Sladen, the actress responsible for Sarah Jane Smith, may be invited to attend the convention, if planning becomes a reality. Of course, the word planning must be stressed as nothing definite has yet been arranged. Elizabeth Sladen did come out, was it in the early 2000s, Australia, to Sydney? Interesting that they threw up her name without actually nailing her down to come. I think it's... uh... Just getting, just peaking the interest, Mark. I think some Australian conventions have that habit, don't they? Really, of advertising guests and then they're not, not turning up. Correct. Want to hear more about that? I think was it the January episode of the Doctor Who show had a convention special that uh, we appeared on. So there's lots of information in that. So uh, if you want to find out more of that uh, intriguing story, go back and uh, listen to that episode. We're going to read out some of the news here that uh, was hot off the presses, either via the phone line or being ripped off uh, Doctor Who magazine, like we used to in the old days. The good old days, Mark. When copyright meant nothing. They're all uh, getting the hot news about season 18. Tom Baker finished up about 40 years ago. Yes. 40 years ago, can you believe it? Now, Tom Baker took on the role when he was 40 and left when he was about 47. So that makes him 87. Holy moly. Yeah. Which means he was in his late 70s when he appeared in um, The Day of the Doctor. Jesus. And he's still doing big finish now, isn't he? Pumping him out. I think I mentioned this before. I've heard a, heard a rumour that um, there are a couple of... A, the equivalent of a couple of years ahead of where they are with the fourth Doctor range. They've just been recording and recording and recording. And why wouldn't you? Yeah. Actually, if they if they want someone to write a script for them, please get in touch with me at the 42todoomsdaygmail.com account. Or contact only fans page. That's right, folks. We don't have a Patreon, but we may have an OnlyFans. More on that perhaps later. So what we'll do is we'll quickly talk about the 18th season. And it starts off with, it appears that the first story of the new season may be titled The Leisure Hive, written by David Fisher. It has the task of introducing the new companion, Adric. One sincerely hopes that Adric doesn't turn out to be a sort of intergalactic pinball wizard. Hang on, Mark. Is that a reference to Tommy? I think so. Why would someone say that? Very strange. Very strange. They've got the right information about Adric. No, nothing about the character. Didn't even appeared in the Leisure Hive as, you know, as a bit later on. Mm. Apparently, the second story carries the provisional title, The Last of the Zolfafurin, and is written by newcomers McCulloch and Flanagan. They don't actually have first names, they just have last names. They just sound like a bunch of Scottish detectives, don't they? <laughs> Coming soon to ABC iView. <laughs> 
Pounding the mean streets of Glasgow, here come McCulloch and Flanagan. Move over, Taggart. Your days are numbered. McCulloch <laughs> and Flanagan. I'll see you, Jimmy. It will star well-known British actor Bill Fraser and surprise, surprise, Jacqueline Hill. Miss Hill is best known as Barbara Wright, one of the Doctor's original companions. Whether she will be recreating that role is not yet known, but it seems unlikely. There is no news on the third story of the season, but the fourth is written by Terence Dix and is provisionally titled State of Decay. Basically, this story is The Vampire Mutations, a story Dix wrote a few years ago, but which was rejected by the BBC because of a clash with its expensive production of Dracula. Horror Fang Rock replaced it. Praise it. They didn't like it, did they? Evil. It has to be the humidity in Queensland that turns people's brains to mush, Mark, surely. Maybe it was the Brisbane Bears also did it to them. Maybe. Yeah, they got bitter about it. They did. Since then, Mr. Dix has dug it up and modified it for Adric. The title was changed to The Witch Lords, then to The Wasting, but has now settled down to State of Decay. High hopes are held for the season as Barry Letts is returning, a fact which surprised and pleased John Pertwee when he discovered it at the recent convention. Mr. Dix has dug it up. I think it was J&T who dug it up in desperation because the cupboard was well and truly bare. The thing about this, Mark, is that most of this information is pretty correct. In the absence of, uh, well, you know, an official sort of magazine like we're used to now... I imagine the fans were either writing letters frantically asking about what was going on in the UK or burning up the telephone lines halfway across the globe. It was probably a bit of both. And then also, if the guys in the UK were getting DWM straight away, they would um, read it down the phone line, potentially copy it or write it out and send it over by the old snail mail. Some of it is right. Can you imagine Barbara Wright in Megloss? That's a big finish, <laughs> ready to go, isn't it, really? <laughs> it could have been her that was plucked from uh, from the earth uh, instead of instead of that fellow in the business suit. But uh, anyway... Yes, the human from Megloss, who's still making a killing on the convention and autograph circuit. Is he? I still give my mates autograph hunters. I love getting autographs on things. And I said, oh, have you got the humans from Megloss yet? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently he was going to do a signing pre-COVID and they were going to get me a special uh, card as a joke or something like that. And of course, COVID hit and didn't get it. <laughs> But speaking of autographs, that John Pertwee, where he signed autographs, and they beat you in charge in those days, did they? No. Now, the uh, the article goes on to say that Target Books, now this is a revelation to me, and I suppose everyone else, Target Books have gone bankrupt, and there will be no more novels after Ian Marder's Armageddon Factor. Neither will there, neither will there be any more reprints. Uh, it is possible that the rights to the novels may be purchased by Arrow. One hopes that if this is the case, there will be a decided improvement in the standard of the text. There are so many wrong things in that paragraph. <laughs> it's like reading a Donald Trump press release, isn't it, really? So many wrong things in a small amount of script. Ian Marta didn't write Armageddon. In fact, it was Uncle Terence. So I think he must have got uh, that mixed up with the uh, Ryboss operation. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was obviously very devastated when they were cancelled because the next month they had more books coming out, so... Hmm. We then move on to the ABC are currently negotiating for the rights to repeat all the John Pertwee stories ever made, from Spearhead from Space right through to the Planet of the Spiders. I sincerely hope they succeed as another repeat of Robot Onwards would try the patience of the stoutest fan. The only thing stopping the ABC is the possibility that the BBC have destroyed the master tapes of these stories. Clarification, or one way or another, should be forthcoming before the next issue of Miniscope. Hmm. Now... Mark, a couple of things. Had all the Pertwee stories been shown in Australia? I think the an- at this point, I think the answer is no. Correct. I think Mind of Evil was skipped. Mm. Ambassadors of Death was skipped. Inferno was skipped. Monster of Paladin, unfortunately, wasn't skipped. 
demons were skipped. They're the ones off the top of my head, and of course the others were uh, held hostage with the sensors, scissors. So. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a number of them that weren't uh, screened. The other interesting thing that popped immediately out on this was uh, the possibility that the BBC have destroyed the master tapes of these stories. This is pre the winter special in 1981 for DWM, isn't it? I think it is, actually, yes. I was just thinking that myself. The The comment that the BBC have destroyed the master tapes really comes out of the blue, doesn't it? I mean, that would be this would be the earliest reference I've ever seen to missing episodes known in fandom i mean of course levine would have known about it in the late 70s unless they've got information via levine or someone levine has spoken to but that's 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 interesting anyway i think there was one or two lines in that making of doctor who book the update in the late 70s okay it was worded very vague from an australian point of view that's sort of definitely the first sort of reference as you said it's sort of called it out it's got clarification so maybe clara oswald should have got back through the doctor's timeline and sorted that out then <laughs> Yes, clarification is spelt clarification, just just, just, just so everyone knows. Bloody Stephen Moffat, he's everywhere, isn't he? Timey-wimey, <laughs> even back then. And to finish this off, Robert says the Doctor Who Weekly will not apparently appear in Australia. Shock horror. Marvel have plans to produce a bi-monthly magazine that will contain much the same matter as the weeklies, but in larger, more irregular doses. Projected date of publication is late August. So, yes, he got that right, because they obviously switched from weekly to monthly. Mm. It was pretty regular. It's still pretty regular. Did the Doctor Who Weekly reach our shores, Mark? I'm not too sure, because I was living over there. I definitely remember Doctor Who Monthly appearing in newsagents, so I'm assuming it would have been. Uh, Look, there must have been, because I've I've seen people selling them here. Yes, I picked up 40 or 50. I think they sort of almost reached a year's run i remember picking up basically all of them in a second-hand bookshop in camberwell about well just after i got married actually for a, a buck a piece and then flogged them off to someone else for three dollars each so um they clearly did make it here bit of profit making for you mate you are the collector or was it the gatherer from the sun makers plenty of talmars happening <laughs> Very true. Actually, that Doctor Who Monthly sort of gives me a very nice little segue here because a friend of the podcast, Aaron Challenger, has opened up a brand new shop in Blackburn in Melbourne here in the eastern suburbs. Uh, It's called Aaron's Collectibles and they're at uh, Shop 31 Main Street in Blackburn. Obviously has a Facebook page, which is A-R-O-N apostrophe S. Have a look on that on, uh, on Facebook, but he's also on Instagram as well as Aaron's. Uh, it's all one word, underscore collectibles uh, website as well, which is uh, www.aaronscollectibles.com. And Aaron, when I spoke to him the other day, said, if you turn up to his store and say to him, I listened to 42 to Doomsday, he will give you a free copy of Doctor Who magazine. Somebody's dumped a whole pile of DWMs that they no longer want. I think it's all talking about the new series, so that's why the guy got rid of them. But if you walk into that shop and say, hi there, I listen to 42 to Doomsday, he will give you a free copy of Doctor Who magazine. And if you say to him also, keep punching, he will give you two copies, both with Jodie Whittaker on the cover. Win-win for Aaron because he gets him out of the shop and win-win for you because you get to read that and uh, that's of course until stocks last just a reminder that that's not a paid advertisement that's just because uh we're doing aaron a, a favor because he supplied the the, uh, the copies of these uh, uh fanzines that we're going through so thank you very much for that aaron much appreciated the shop is fantastic and it's well set out and uh the guys are in there go and have a chat and say i listen to 42 to doomsday you should either get escorted back by security or get a magazine depending on the day exactly mm-hmm. 
So just before we wrap things up, Mark, with our latest episode, I just wanted to ask you, and we can have a little chat about it, what did you think uh, reading through these uh, fanzines, uh, these Queensland uh, fanzines from the late 70s, early 80s, what did you think that they say about the state of uh, Australian fandom uh, way back when, 40 years ago? Doctor Who fandom back then was still in its infancy and obviously the fanzines are going out to all states but a very small number of fans. Their opinions are very, very... Uh, strongly held. I mean, obviously, they're very passionate about the show uh, and not in really particularly enjoying its uh, latest incarnation, which really sort of, that, what do they say? History doesn't mm. repeat, but it rhymes. I mean, people, uh, you know, even 40 years down the track, despite whatever era the program, you're going to have the um, the fans and the, and the haters. So Doctor Who fans are very passionate about how they perceive the program to, to be. Uh, and when it doesn't go their way, they get a bit, a little bit stroppy about it. But uh, look, mm. the views are very interesting. Uh, and I think, I mean, the great thing about the wilderness years was you could go back and watch a lot of these stories again. And I think with time, season 17, is um, its perception is slightly better than what it was yes. uh, back then. I don't have much of uh, an issue with that season. I think it's a lot of fun. Yes, in some ways it did go too far, especially with uh, Uncle Tom's performance. There's some good ideas. It's just the execution wasn't particularly good. Look, kudos to all the people who've actually, you know, the people who put this, uh, th- these fanzines together and, you know, corralled, uh, you know, contributors, because it is, it, it can be, I mean, looking, uh, I was played a small part with uh, David and Richard uh, from the Spacefall podcast in, in um, you know, putting together the Sonic Screwdriver, the Doctor Who Club of Victoria's uh, fanzine t- uh, t- during or towards the, uh, th- the 50th anniversary, and the amount of work those two lads put into you know putting out a quality product it, it is a labor of love so i mean it, it is great to see that you know in the fandom's earliest years here in australia that there were people prepared to you know put their money where their mouth is in terms of uh, you know fronting up and paying out for for costs and whatever to put this out and i mean it some of the views are pretty strident which is i think is just a product of of that particular era i, I think a lot of these fans had grown up during you know pertwee and the early uh, tom baker years and the, the show was at its height at that time and then they see a change and as i mentioned earlier fandom surprisingly is rather conservative and they don't really like change from what they've you know they've come to know and appreciate so season 17 which appears to have been a lot of a focus of these issues uh cops some wax simply because it, it takes a different approach it's got a different producer it has different you know marching orders from the bbc from the top floor so uh you you get a you get a more uh, probably an aggressive tone uh, i think obviously with with the passage of years a lot of these thoughts a lot of the contributors thoughts would have mellowed uh but I, this you know doing a fanzine is a little bit like contributing to say records doctor who in the early 90s i knew of no people who were shy and retiring violets including myself in the sort of views that they were you know promulgating on the on the very very early internet so um and it's australian and you know whereas you, you read some you know because i've i bought heaps and heaps of fanzines in the 90s and some of the fanzines were you know deferential to the show and uh and, and accommodating to, to, to different things but some fanzines know how to put the boot in dwb for instance <laughs> uh, and sometimes rightly so and sometimes wrongly so but i mean i don't suppose there's, there's no wrong opinions as such i mean it is just opinions about uh a tv show and not sort of you know science-based facts or anything like that uh, so it's really interesting to go back and have a look and see what what fandom thought. And as you say, 
there's been a mellowing, uh, I think, uh, since then. Season 17, as I think, is much more appreciated. Though, funnily enough, I was just listening to a, listening to an interview with Gary Russell uh, this evening before I, uh, we started recording, where he he just he drops the knee into the throat of City of Death. He absolutely hates it. So, wow, <laughs> just that's just a by the by. Hello, yeah. Gary, if you're listening. You know, he's script edited to the end of time, and I absolutely hate that as well. It's all swings and roundabouts, isn't it, Mark? I don't know if he actually did his job on that episode, but anyway, we'll move on, shall we? Someone had to photocopy the scripts, Mark. I know you said all opinions are valid, but come on. Horror Fang Rock saying it's not very good and Monster Paladon is a flawless production? Really? Come on. Some people do need to be taken away in a paddy wagon with the white, <laughs> the men in the white suits and the butterfly nets. But Keep licking those cane toads. <laughs> It is interesting to see, you know, there were fans who were happy to travel interstate to go see, um, go, go, go to a convention. Uh, this was the period where a number of actors who played the Doctor were in Australia. There was, you know, Tom Baker had come a couple of times, I think. Uh, Peter Davison was shortly to arrive on our shores. Uh, John Pertwee was here. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it was a long, long flight to Australia, but I mean, it was... It's gratifying in a sense that um, those actors were prepared to up stumps and, you know, spend a couple of weeks, you know, flying out and tra- travelling around and, and seeing the fans. Or in Peter Davis's case, it's been stuck in in every Maya store and every capital city, having people just queuing up, <laughs> signing target books and wondering when can I go out and see a koala bear and then get on TV hosting the Logies. Did he host the Logies? Yeah, he did. He, he presented an award, but I think with Jackie McDonald from Hey Hey Saturday. Oh, God. So there, there you go. Another Queenslander. That would be on YouTube somewhere, surely. I imagine so. Do you reckon uh, Mr. Davison, or really Mr. Moffat, has he actually changed his name legally, do we know? His daughter, George, is called Georgia Moffat. Ah, well, correct. Originally, so it's just so. a stage name, I suppose. Well, do you think he wakes up in a cold sweat just thinking about, you know, the <laughs> being wheeled around Australia? Yeah. Those who don't know, Myers uh, was a very large department store here in Melbourne. It's still going. Uh, uh, it's fallen on harder times now, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was just wheeled around like a prop, basically, wasn't it? Get back in your cricket gear, Peter. That's it. I know you're signing autographs in Melbourne because one of our friends actually got to see him there. Okay, it's a bit like that skit from the The League of Gentlemen did uh, in the late '90s, where Peter Davidson's being kidnapped, <laughs> and he's. <laughs> He's in that bedroom, <laughs> and uh, it all goes very, very dark, very, very quickly. <laughs> that was actually shot in the Maya basement, I think. <laughs> it's all there. I was in the Maya basement uh, during uh, lockdown, or not during lockdown, but just shortly after lockdown. Very spooky. What were you doing in there? Shopping. Oh, okay. Actually, no, I had to go to the toilet. That was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. One of the unattended corners of the building, but anyway. So, shall we talk about what we're going to be doing for the next few months? All right, let's do that. We'll just give you a brief overview of what we're going to be um, releasing. Now, the order may change depending on schedules and things like that, but we're pretty sure these are going to be the next three episodes. Hopefully, the first one will be another what-if episode dedicated to an alternate Pertwee years. This is where we'll be asking for listener feedback and suggestions as well. So, the period of the Great Man is pretty good, apart from Monster Paladon. So we would like to get your suggestions in terms of what would you have potentially changed in that uh, five years of The Great Man. I'd be really sort of keen to get people's uh, thoughts on that. So have a think about what was popular on television and in the cinema at that time and, you know, throw some ideas together about what, you know, what Pertwee or the Pertwee era could have done in terms of reflecting uh, those particular programs and, 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 and movies. Uh, so it'd be interesting to have a, have a chat about that one at Mark. Hopefully we'll be having a special guest. Uh, Rob Lloyd will be back. That Rob Lloyd. The man who loves the pert. Because let's be honest, last time he was on, <laughs> it was an interesting chat about the timeless children. We want to make it up to him a little bit. So we thought we'd get him back on, talk about his favourite uh, era of the program. 
but through a different lens, Rob. Very nice, Mark. The next podcast after that is a follow-up to our extremely popular and, nay, slightly controversial uh, merchandising melancholy episode we had with Aaron Challenger. So we're going to um, revisit that topic and see if things have improved from a Doctor Who merchandising perspective through a retailer's eyes. Spoiler, I don't think it has. While there's life, there's hope. But also talk about what effects COVID had on the uh, on collecting. Ooh, nice. People buy more stuff or do they sell stuff or was a bit of both? And what did he sort of see passing through the uh, the hands of shops and and obviously online, given that we're all locked down and things like that. So that'll be uh, coming up hopefully after that. And then we're going to do another top five, aren't we, Rob? We are. You had a great suggestion I about did. top five master stories. Yes. So people, start sending in your top five master stories. Uh, from down the ages. Uh, Mark? Yes? While we'll stick to television, should we allow our beautiful and beloved listeners to include uh, master stories from other mediums? Why not? Well, well, you know, because there was, you know, there's some some books that featured the master. There was even a video game that featured the master. There was, and there's plenty of big finish there as well, except obviously that guy who they've sort of uh, cancelled. But yeah, I think it's a great idea. Let's, uh, shall we loosen the cannon a little bit, Rob, you reckon? I think just for our sanity, we'll just stick with the TV episodes or stories. But for all the listeners, as I said before, uh, you know, blow the doors open and just, you know, you can talk about the TV show, you can talk about Big Finish, you can talk about the books, anything to do with the master, your top five master stories. So what we'll do is we'll uh, put out the relevant posts when we're calling for that information very shortly. But it'd be great to get all your feedback and suggestions to uh, make it a bit more lively. So not just hearing the rantings of two madmen sitting in the corner of an empty room. Correct. So thanks very much once again, everyone, for tuning in and downloading our latest episode. Uh, Mark and I, I think, have had a lot of fun, haven't we, Mark? We have indeed, as per normal. So uh, keep an eye out on your social media of choice. Uh, send in those suggestions for alternate Pertwee stories and uh, top five master stories for our next uh, episodes. And I'm definitely looking forward to catching up with Aaron and talking all things merchandising. But until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Mark. We'll talk again soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with with you again soon.